Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan. The Green Party recognises that government has a mandate for this legislation and it has the majority to pass it through. So our position has been one of constructive engagement, seeking changes through the Select Committee and then tabling some supplementary order papers uh, to seek some further changes. A supplementary order paper flaps its wings and by the following Monday, constitutional chaos. Entrenching part of the Three Waters legislation is being called undemocratic by the National Party. It's possibly a good idea to discuss the idea that long-term strategic infrastructure, you would want a higher parliamentary threshold to protect it. However, this was absolutely the wrong way to go about it. I'll eat my hat if, 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 uh, if the Three Waters gets uh, entrenched. Labour and the Green Party's attempt to leverage their overwhelming majority and entrench a party political policy has now been kicked back to Parliament. We agree it should be used really. Cabinet intends to have a bit of a discussion today about that principle. The controversial entrenchment clause in the Three Waters legislation has been kicked back to Parliament's Business Committee for further consideration and could include discussion about repealing it. But the very suggestion has unleashed the genie and the public lawyers from the bottle. So today on The Detail, we cast an eye over... What happened? What the implications would be for our constitutional framework? And why this whole exercise might, paradoxically, show the system working exactly as intended. Andrew Geddes is a professor of law at Otago University, And as it turns out, he was actually the unintended inspiration for Eugenie Sage's proposal. He mooted the possibility of a 60% threshold in a newsroom article back in June, but he says he never expected the idea to actually be picked up. Let's talk broad strokes first of all, and then we'll delve down in a bit more nitty-gritty. Something happened last week that got constitutional nerds like you, all kinds of head up, Andrew. Nerds are cool, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean that in the best sense. Um, Can you please explain what that thing was? So the government is passing through one of the bills to set up its three waters policy, which is all horribly complicated and we won't get into the detail of it. One of the provisions, however, sets up these things called water service uh, entities. So basically the bodies that are going to be managing and running the, the, the three waters. And the worry is that one day a government might down the track decide that, you know, these things are very valuable, they're dealing with a very valuable resource, and they might want to privatise it. So the bill has in it a provision that says before these entities can be sold off or any bits of them can be sold off, there's a very complicated process has to be gone through, uh, which makes it so hard to do, the chances are it'll never actually get privatised. The concern then is, well, you know, what's to stop a future government from taking those protections that will be in the bill? and removing them so that the protection against privatisation gets taken away to make it easier to privatise. At a very late stage in the bill, something called a supplementary order paper, which is essentially just a proposal to change the bill, was uh, put forward to say that before the protection for these agencies can be removed, 60% of members of parliament will have to agree. That's very unusual in New Zealand law, to say that an act of parliament requires anything more than a bare majority to change it, because our parliamentary system works on a basic premise that parliament is all powerful. It can make any law it wants, pretty much. But a future parliament is equally free to come along and change it. 
So if you're in today's majority, great, you get to make the law. But you always know that if someone comes along in the future, that majority changes its mind, it can undo what you've done. This was an attempt to change that basic uh, principle to say, no, on this one issue, the protection of these water entities, 60% of MPs will be required to change it. We need a supermajority. Now, there is a broader context and backstory to this. The idea of requiring a supermajority or more than a bare majority to um, repeal certain aspects of Three Waters has been mooted for some months, correct? Right. So when the bill was originally proposed by the government, they said, look, we want to you know, show that we're really serious. There'll be no privatisation. So we want a 75% majority uh, entrenchment. And so we invite all the parties in Parliament to come together and, you know, unified say privatisation will not happen. National Enact said, no, you know what, we're against privatisation, but we don't want to include that. We don't think entrenchment is a, a proper thing to do here. And so the idea seemed to have kind of gone fallow. It seemed to have fallen away. And it really was a surprise, I think, to everyone, well, obviously not everyone, because, uh, you know, some MPs obviously knew this was coming, when the supplementary order paper, this proposal was brought in again at a very late stage, proposing that there be an entrenchment by 60% of MPs. Now, the 60% is because there's a rule in Parliament that says if you want to put one of these entrenchment provisions in law, you have to have the same percentage of MPs vote for it as it will require to change in the future. Mm. And because Labour and the Greens have 60% of the seats, they just said, okay, we will make the entrenchment 60%. That's what we've got at the moment. Right. So it's a pretty contingent way of bringing this protection in after it had been kind of proposed and sort of you know floated and rejected uh, on a cross-party basis. Uh, rather, it, was, it looked a little bit like Labour and Greens going, well, we're just going to shovel this in at a late stage without really anyone noticing or paying attention to what we're doing. This is a, a, a very new and we think dangerous precedent uh, to try and handcuff a future government on a particular policy issue. Core to all of this, Andrew, is the idea of entrenched legislation. Explain to me the concept of entrenchment in an idealistic way. What is the idea behind the entrenchment of legislation in a country like Aotearoa? So the basic premise, as I mentioned before, is that the parliament of today can make any law on anything it wants by a bare majority. Now, most of the time that works okay because, you know, policies change, majorities change, viewpoints change. It allows our law to stay pretty supple, pretty flexible. You can, you know, keep things up to date. Great. There are some things, though, in our system that you don't want to be easily changed. There are some things that you actually want to be pretty much set in stone unless pretty much everyone agrees it's a good idea to change it. And so there are some parts of our Electoral Act that have been entrenched where we say only 75% of MPs or a majority at a referendum can change them. Things like the length of the term of Parliament. The age at which people can vote, how people vote, uh, you know, the secret ballot, the way our electorates are drawn up. Now, those things are protected and given an extra specially difficult uh, process for change because you just simply don't want majorities able to change them easily. Because otherwise, today's majority in Parliament could pass a change to our Electoral uh, Constitution Act and say, we're going to have five years in power rather than three years. 
or we're going to raise the voting age to 25 because, you know, we don't like the way that 18 to 25 year olds vote and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. So for those very small number of critical core elements of our electoral system, we have this different rule. Everyone pretty much has to agree to the change. Cross-party consensus is needed because that's the best way of making sure no one's going to try to gain the system. The current proposal to entrench uh, the um, three waters entities against privatization is different. That's a policy. It's a policy on which reasonable people may have different views. And what you see here is today's temporary majority saying, we're so sure on this one particular issue that we know what's right. We're saying to tomorrow's majority, you just can't change it. You're not going to be allowed to. Right. Okay. To draw a crude metaphor, if we think of the laws of New Zealand's land as being like a house, governments can come in and they can do whatever they want to the sort of superficial, visible elements of the house. They can change the curtains, they can change the furniture, they can get a new stove, they can buy a new fridge, they can do the painting, whatever. However, underneath all of that are the foundations of the house, and the foundations of the house are not to be faffed with unless pretty much everybody agrees that the foundations of the house need to be faffed with, and that is this idea of entrenchment. That's a beautiful metaphor which I will steal and include in my lectures next year. Thank you. I'm (laughs) delighted. I'm delighted. Building on that metaphor, though, if I... Sorry to use a pun. That's the joke. Uh, thank you. There is an open question as to what sort of things should be regarded as foundational and so protected by the entrenchment provision and what sort of the, you know, the curtains and the furnishings and so on, as you mentioned. Uh, at the moment, we put into that sort of foundational protected by entrenchment uh, camp only a very few bits of our electoral system. There's lots of our electoral system and other bits of our constitution we don't protect in that way. So, for instance, we don't protect the party vote threshold at which parties get MPs in parliament. The identity of our sovereign, our head of state, it's not protected. I mean, that could, in theory, be changed by a bare majority of MPs and so on and so on. So, you know, there, there is a debate as to what we should entrench in terms of, you know, foundational bits of our system of government. That, however, doesn't really stretch into sort of what policies we ought to entrench, you know, because policies, like I say, they, you know, majorities come and go. We change our view on what the best way to do all sorts of things should be. And so to stretch this idea of some things are so important, majorities shouldn't change them into actual policies on which reasonable people disagree, it changes the nature of our lawmaking process and it changes, you know, what parliament can and can't do. Is it fair to think of entrenching maybe in a way as being kind of like a de facto constitutional... Like New Zealand is unusual, isn't it, among Western democracies in that we don't have a single um, document that is our written constitution. We do have constitutional conventions, but they are scattered throughout the law. Is entrenchment kind of a way of, of signifying that these are kind of like big constitutional things? Yeah, they are. It is really. It's, it's, it's Parliament's way of saying these things are so fundamental, so foundational to how our system works that our ordinary lawmaking processes, our ordinary presumptions that majorities can do what they want, just don't apply. When we entrench something, we're saying it is foundational constitutional in a way that we imagine like things like the US Constitution or the the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms are. And so this seemed, or critics of of what the left bloc, the uh, Labour and the Greens have done here, it seems to those critics to be 
a political party using the instrument of entrenchment, which comes with great significance and gravitas, to further what is essentially a party political policy, which very much goes against the convention of how entrenchment is used in Aotearoa. Exactly. It, it takes a constitutional concept which has been developed in the way of saying there are bits of our system of government that are so important majorities shouldn't change it. And it's taken that concept and taken it over to the realm of policy and said there are some substantive social policies we, the temporary majority, think are so important, we're going to make future majorities basically unable to change or at least only able to change through a, you know, a great deal more trouble. And so that changes the nature of how entrenchment is used, and it changes potentially the nature of how entrenchment is viewed. Because one of the things with entrenchment is you want people to take it really, really seriously, to really respect it, and to really think, yeah, yeah, okay, we accept its importance. And the more that you start to apply it to things that you know people just disagree about the nature of and may disagree and change their mind about in the future – you risk undermining its mana, its seriousness within the system. Well, and I suppose as well, there's sort of the be careful what you wish for element to this is where, you know, once you've set this precedent of uh, the party that's um, that can form the government is going to entrench stuff that it considers really, really important, but is essentially party political. What does that mean for future governments? Future governments could adopt that exact same uh, attitude, though I suppose one of the key differences here is it's unlikely that future government majorities will be as large as the majority that Labour and the Greens have at the minute. Sure. But of course, as we've seen, there's nothing magical about the number you entrench at. So, you know, the Labour and the Greens happen to have 60% of the seats, so they put it at 60. A future governing arrangement may have 55% of the seats, so they set it at 55 and so on. So there's that risk. And of course, as you point out, and you know, now it's been done once, it's if this is allowed to stand and if it, you know, you know, basically if they get away with it, you know, why shouldn't a future government say, well, as far as we're concerned, this policy is so fundamental, matters so much that it has to be set in stone or as close as we can. And we're going to try to protect it against future majorities coming in and wanting to change it. And so the trick is, you know, when you're thinking about this, to think about a policy you would hate and you would want to get changed if the government changed and ask yourself, would you be happy with that thing being entrenched? And if you wouldn't be happy with that thing being entrenched, well, you have to recognise, well, now the gate's opened. It could be. And why shouldn't it be? It's one thing to protect the sort of constitutional issues, but what we're talking about is economic policy. I mean, I don't want to see water, uh, water privatised. I think that's sort of a pretty core government function. But the idea that we start down the road, down the route of trying to bind and tie future parliaments on economic matters is pretty... It's worrying because it's sort of got an anti-democratic feel to it. You know, it's like trying to um, make a temporary majority permanent or closer to being permanent. Andrew, let's go through some of the arguments in favour of what Labour and the Greens have proposed to do here or have done here. The first you touched on before, the bullish argument that actually, you know, entrenchment is used to solidify matters of serious public importance. Retaining control of our water is a matter of serious public importance. This might be an unorthodox way of going about things, but it is absolutely justifiable. Uh, your response to that argument, please. Uh, give me a petition to sign and I'll sign it. Hmm. Uh, the difference here is we are saying we are so absolutely certain that public ownership of water for all time 
as necessary and is the best way to do things, et cetera, et cetera, that we are saying to future majorities, irrespective of what you think about it and irrespective of the conditions you're in and irrespective of, you know, however you things may have changed in the intervening years, you will only be able to change our view on the ownership of water if you can get to 60%. And if you can't get to 60%, tough. We in the past have dictated what you must do. I'm all for, you know, standing by your guns and, you know, standing up for your principles. But to say that you're so absolutely damned right on an issue that you can tell the future how it has to go about answering that question seems to me to be just a little bit arrogant. All right, here's another argument. The idea of entrenching parts of Three Waters, as we've discussed, was flagged months ago, way back uh, in April. Um, that's according mm-hmm. to Thomas Coughlin, friend of the podcast. If anybody had a problem with it, they should have said so at the time. This is just the opposition being useless and not doing its job. It went to sleep and this got through tough bickies. Lots of people said it was had a problem with it. So there's advice from the Ministry of Justice and uh, other um, uh, government departments saying this just is not appropriate for entrenchment. The issue was raised in Select Committee, and Select Committee certainly didn't recommend entrenching by a 60% majority. Certainly, it's true that you know back in the day, the, the Green Party did flag that they might try to do this, but there's been no public debate on it. The advice on it has been, it's a bad idea, you shouldn't do it. And frankly, the opposition couldn't really do anything about it because Labour and the Greens have got 60% of the seats, and so they were able to push it through with their 60% majority. So... I mean, yes, the fact that it was raised, but then appeared to have been rejected, and then all of a sudden was brought back in by a supplementary order paper with no real notice and no real public debate, does not strike me as the best lawmaking practice for us as a country. All right, here's one advanced by Eugenie Sage, who introduced um, the SOP. Eugenie Sage brought up the 2013 referendum on asset sales. The referendum will ask whether New Zealanders support the government's sale of up to 49% of Meridian Energy, Mighty River Power, Genesis Power, Solid Energy and Air New Zealand. This was a citizen-initiated referendum that returned a handsome majority uh, who were against partial asset sales. More than two-thirds of the voters in the citizens-initiated referendum opposed the government's plan to partially sell four power companies and Air New Zealand. Regardless of that referendum, the national government bulldozed ahead with those partial asset sales. The Labour leader, David Cunliffe, says the Prime Minister is arrogant to push ahead with partial asset sales in spite of the overwhelming referendum results. Sage was basically saying... We have seen, though, with national and state assets, they ignored 300,000 signatures on the September 2013 petition. National has no respect for democracy anyway. Here is proof we need to do this because they can't be trusted. Sure, but you have to remember the national government was elected after having campaigned directly on its mixed ownership model policy. It said, if we're elected, we're going to do this. And they won the election. They then carried through their policy. They stood for re-election and they won the next election. No, they won an election a year after. No, no, they won an election a year after announcing that policy. You can talk all you like about public submissions. As I say, the greatest public submission is rocking up to the ballot box. So, you know, you have to be very careful about, you know, what, you know, who has a mandate and what that then allows and so on and so on. We also have to be a little bit careful about holding up citizen-initiated referenda results as showing what the people want and therefore what the law should be. We had a citizen-initiated referenda that showed a large proportion of those who took part in the referenda thought that the uh, Section 59 of the Crimes Act Amendment 
criminalizing the punishment of children, uh, physical punishment of children, was a bad idea. Now, I didn't notice the Green Party say, oh, the people have spoken, we must get rid of that. So, you know, we get very slippery when we start using things like referendum results as showing, you know, the, what the people want. This is a political issue on which people will disagree and will have different views over time. And that's the way politics works. And to take one issue out of that mix and say, nope, it gets extra special protection because I think it's really important. It's changing how we do politics and how we make law in the country. The final argument that I'll put to you, Andrew, um, which I will dub the too bad argument, uh, and it goes something like, hey, this is a convention, baby, and conventions are made to be broken. Times change. Uh, We've got a big majority in the House. You can't stop us. We're doing nothing wrong. Cry some more salty, delicious tears, and we'll see you at the election. Okay, watch out for what you wish for, because you've done it. You've broken the convention. You've shown there's a different way to do things. See you at the election. If you're not in the majority after the next election, don't cry when it gets done to you. When you take this all in, you know, big picture, essentially what we have here is a a political bloc breaking with convention to try to embed economic policy more deeply than it otherwise would. And they claim that this is to uphold democracy. Uh, His opponents say, to the contrary, it undermines democracy. What do you say? I strongly suspect that this action was taken without really thinking through its full consequences and without really thinking through uh, its potential ramifications. In its wake, I'm thinking that actually the system looks like it might have worked like it should, that there was an overreach within Parliament and that uh, members of Parliament, the majority, supermajority in this case, got a little bit carried away and thought, oh, here's a clever idea. Those who sort of have a bigger picture view of the system of government and our constitution have then said, well, you know what? Your idea might have been clever and you might feel sort of morally vindicated with what you did, but here are the potential downsides to what you've done and here's the potential problems with it and the process you went through in doing this really isn't up to speed. With that criticism and with those comments uh, ringing out, it looks like our political actors the supermajority government government is now having a second thought and going, you know what? There are more important things than winning on the particular issues ahead of us. And we should take these constitutional matters seriously. We should really think about them hard and, you know, recognize if we've made a mistake, go back and fix it. So in a sense, this may be the system self-correcting by having a discussion about you know, what is important in our constitution, what really matters and why it matters. And if that is the case, yay, it actually, you know, that this could actually be a salutary thing that shows that those who are in power aren't actually just about power. They're not just about winning the immediate issue in front of them. They are thinking bigger picture about the health of how our system works. And if that's the case, I actually think it will be a good thing. All systems work through people, Mm. and systems are only as strong as what the people who are involved in it take seriously and what they they will and won't do, what they think is right. And in New Zealand, we are lucky that those who are in power do take these constitutional matters seriously. Now, sometimes they may slip up, sometimes they may try a fast one and so on, but when they get called out, 
it gets picked up, it gets talked about, perhaps it gets talked about even more seriously than would be the case if we had a written constitution, because we're not going to the courts, we're not asking the courts to resolve this. We're looking at our political actors to act, to think, to consider the criticism, and they've got nothing to hide behind. And so, you know, we're calling them out, we're saying you made a mistake, go back and try to fix it. And if they do go back and fix it, which I hope they will do, you know, the system works. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The Detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by William Saunders and produced by Sarah Robson. And thanks to Andrew Geddes. Matewa. Te